Hello and welcome to ROI, Relevant or Irrelevant, the radio show where events of history are examined through the discussion of books, journal articles, papers, and presentations. Then historians and history buffs ask the question, what is relevant or irrelevant in today's world? My name is Jay Swords. This is our 543rd show of ROI. Our guest for today is Dr. Jonathan Schulz, Assistant Professor in the Department of Economics at George Mason University, and we're going to be talking about the Church Intensive Kinship and Global Psychological Variation. Joining us for the second segment of the show will be our history buffs, Rick Sweet and Ed Broders. To begin with, welcome back to the show, Jonathan. Thank you very much. It's great to be back. We are excited. This is, I'm really pumped to, to do this topic. Um, I just find everything about it fascinating. So we start out with what we call Farouk the Naran, and it's really just a goal to give our listeners a little background. So I thought the first thing maybe we needed to talk about is what you mean by psychological variation. So if you look at many, many different surveys and measures that psychology has used to characterize individuals, so this can be individualism, it can be collectivism, can be trust. You see that there's a variation around the world. So if you apply these measures to many populations around the world, for example, you see that in many Western countries, the U.S. or Western Europe, uh, that people score higher on individualism. While if you go to other parts of the world, you will see, let's say, China, but also the Middle East or Africa, that people will score higher on collectivism. And, of course, you can look at many other measures and you'll find a similar pattern. Okay, so is this something that develops as a cultural phenomenon over time? I'm, I guess I'm thinking of, do we see a different pattern if we look at ancient populations than we would see if we look at modern populations? Is, is that something you can expect Exactly. I mean, that's a super interesting question, and that's something that we're currently w working on. Um, I mean, one drawback of, of this research agenda is that, of course, all these psychological measures only emerged maybe, let's say, in the last 30 to 50 years. So we can't go so far back in time based on, on these, these measures. But what we're currently wa uh, working on is to go back in time, and the way to do this is that we look at texts written texts, and we try to get psychology out of these texts. And the hypothesis is really that historical events, distant historical events, shape our psychology. This can be subsistence. For example, within China, you have an area that grows rice, and you have an area that grows wheat. And so, it, you know, it goes very far back in history. And in the area that grows uh, wheat, people are a bit more individualistic than in the area that people grow rice. And the rationalist, well, to grow rice, you really have to work closely together. So this way, you uh, people there in the rice-growing areas develop a more collectivistic psychology. And we want to trace this now using textual computational textual analysis, both in Chinese and in Latin and, and probably also in Persian. That I just again I find that so fascinating as a as a context um, and having been familiar um, with Dean Simonton's work where he did sort of the same thing looking at genius as a as a construct and used literary sources and, and texts in order to find that for the particular um, research that you did here 
I'm wondering if you could just tell our readers what kinds of things did you use? What what kinds of of uh, materials? How did you decide what you know what um, measures you were going to to look at and how you were going to measure them and how you were going to assign importance to the to the uh, results that you got? So in this historical project where we go, we're trying to go back in time. This is still work, very much work in progress. So I can't give uh, too many specific details. Um, but it's really we look at these texts and we try to look at um, how certain words are changing, how the meanings of these words are changing. And we can do this through word embeddings. So word embeddings means in what context do certain words arise? Um, are they embedded? You know, if it's it's a if it's about emotion, for example, are they embedded in a more positive context or or a negative context? In this way, we can get a psychology. Another interesting fact of languages is that if you look at languages and if these languages stress the word I, so the the ego, the the the, the first person um, uh, singular then often these languages are also associated with more individualism. Okay. Um, so this will kind of be the, the last question for this segment, but I'm interested then as we, as we move forward into sort of the, the more modern time period, um, immigration has to play a part in this because now you're moving cultures around geographically, sometimes over vast distances, I'm thinking of uh, European colonization or Chinese colonization into Southeast Asia, things like that. Do you expect that to change the cultures that they're embedded in, or do they become isolated communities within broader cultures? I mean, two answers. So the first answer is is very empirically. So if you, if you look at empirics, what you'll find is that uh, the first generation and the second generation of immigrants in, in existing societies like the U.S. or, or in Europe, um, that uh, psychology is often very well predicted based on characteristics of the originating countries. But you also see that over time, um, uh, people assimilate and, uh, and become closer to the uh, destinations or the, the resident country uh, culture and, and psychology but of course um, there's many details to that and I do think you know if, if, if it's only a small group coming from a particular country origin country or, or culture then pressure to assimilate is, is stronger than if there's already a large um, group in the destination country um, then the pressure to assimilate uh, is, is less strong and it also depends very much on, uh, so, so what I look at a lot is marriage patterns. Um, so part of my hypothesis is that the Western culture really became this Western culture based on uh, the Catholic Church regulation on marriages. But of course, that also is, is very import for, important for immigration. So if you have a group of people who just marry within their own culture, maybe even within their families or uh, high rates of cousin marriage, then, of course, assimilation um, um, might be slower or, or might not happen um, as much. All right. Well, we have so much more to talk about, so please stay tuned for the next segment of our show. This is ROI on KALA St. Ambrose University, 106.1 FM. 
Davenport, Rock Island, Milan, Coal Valley, Taylor Ridge, Bettendorf, Eldridge, Long Grove, LeClaire, Moline, East Moline, and Silvis. We're right in your neighborhood with local radio for the Quad Cities. KALA Davenport, 88.5 FM. Hello and welcome back to ROI, Relevant or Irrelevant, the radio show where events of history are examined through the discussion of books, journal articles, papers, and presentations. Then historians and history buffs ask the question, what is relevant or irrelevant in today's world? My name is Jay Swords, and this is the second segment of the show referred to as The Kitchen Table. Our guest for today is Dr. Jonathan Schulz, Assistant Professor in the Department of Economics at George Mason University, and we're talking about the church, intensive kinship, and global psychological variation. Our history bus for today are Rick Sweet and Ed Broders. Rick, why don't you start us off? <laughs> Jonathan, uh, in your article, the, the, the church is a word that's uh, uh, in your article's uh, title, and you touched on the Catholic Church. Uh, are there other religious organizations uh, or ideologies that impact uh, uh, these uh, variations that you're researching? So in, in my research, I really put a lot of emphasis on the Catholic and I also stress medieval church. And uh, I don't think that the religion, the, the Catholic religion per se, had such a big impact, but of course it, it can. But really what the, the reason that um, the church impacts psychology goes through their regulation and restrictions on marriages. So you have to imagine that uh, Europe before the Catholic Church was a clan-based, very tribal society, lots of cousin marriages, and then the church comes, and that means the family is very strong and the family can create all these demands on obedience and loyalty on people, and that shapes psychology more towards collectivism. But then the church comes along and creates this new lo local meaning. Um, a couple creates their own new household somewhere else um, without any cousin marriage and so on. And they create this new uh, family pattern, and this really shapes then psychology. And, and other religions also um, have regulations when it comes to, to marriages. I think in Islam, um, polygyny is, is uh, restricted, and then the Zoroastrians around the same time, they go a different direction. They really value incest. They say this is a poor form of marriage. So they, they were experimenting with that. And of course, then this also can impact um, psychology. All this is not to say that religion per se and different religions per se and the teachings can also impact um, psychology. In particular, large moralizing gods lie in the like in the Abrahamic religions, but also Buddhism and Hinduism seem to have been very successful as religions because they might um, induce people to behave more honestly and behave more cooperatively because they see everything and so you you can't cheat as much if you want to go to heaven, let's say. Yes. <laughs> okay. Ed. Yeah, Jonathan, you mentioned uh, earlier in the show that there's this sort of rough division of individualism, individualism with his, which is a Western uh, characteristic, and collectivism, which seems to be more Eastern. Um, how's this playing out in China and Vietnam? Because communist countries are presumably very collective uh, or operate on collectivism, Yet they're running smack dab into the um, 
most individualistic thing we've got, and that's consumerism. Yeah, I think that's a super interesting question. And in my thinking, and, and that's, uh, that's also reflected uh, in Emmanuel Todd, is that often people's psychology at some point will be reflected in a political system. So if you're very individualistic, um, democracy um, can follow because people like to voice their individualistic point of view. They like to discuss with others. They, they like these, the, um, these kind of discussions and in the end should um, lead to compromise. And so, so the pattern that seems to emerge is that in, in more collectivistic societies, these also probably were more, I could even say, vulnerable for to adopt communism than others. And, but the interesting part of, about China is that, um, so I'm talking a lot about these marriage patterns and how they shape individualism. In China, the Communist Party forbade cousin marriage, and, uh, and they had some other policies, for example, the one-child policy. And of course, this one-child policy affects the network structure. And what I suspect, and this is something I would like to research further in the future, is that these policies within China um, fostered a more individualistic culture. It would be really nice to trace that over time and trying to link this to the one-child policy and, and also to, um, to to these bans on cousin marriage that the Communist Party implemented. But of course, that's future research. I'm, I'm not, um, yeah. That's still to to find out. So along the same lines, maybe this is also future research, but I'm interested in your in your thoughts. We've talked about Europe, we've talked about Asia, but we haven't talked about Africa yet. Um, where does um, African cultures tend to fall, and particularly, I guess, because at least at least economically, we think of Africa as being a less developed country than, than say, Europe is, or, or maybe, um, you know, at least North Asia. Uh, how, does, how did Africa come out on, on your research? Are they more in, in extensive or intensive? Is that also, does, is there a sense that, that, um, that maybe European colonizing influences have altered those uh, interactions or those cultural patterns? Oh, definitely. Um, uh, Europe influences had a big impact, and when I when I talk about psychology and, and marriage patterns, I'm not trying to say that uh, this is the only factor. I'm I'm just saying it's an important factor. So, uh, colonizing and enslaving and, and before colonization, enslaving people had a huge negative impact on Africa's development. But apart from that, Africa is a huge continent with many many different cultures uh, it, and um, you know if you look at the map about how many ethnicities there are probably uh, Africa as a continent would have most ethnicities now we were interested in 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 this effect of uh, what we call kinship intensity so the strength of clans lineages and uh, whether caste marriage is prevalent and um, and we looked at, at variation in ethnicities, and the most variation comes from Africa. And we looked at um, characteristics, um, argue, arguably, of these ethnicities before European uh, contact or major contact. And what we find within Africa is that societies before this European contact or the industrialization that had these strong kinships, had stronger clans, they do worse 
uh, economically today, while those ethnicities that had looser or kinship, they do better economically. And, and the way we do this is we look at satellite nighttime in luminosity, and we see that there's more light time in societies that historically had weaker kinship intensity than, than in other societies. And it's actually fascinating, these ethnic boundaries from many, many years ago, they, they still exist, and you really see a drop-off in this light um, in luminosity from, from night, night uh, light satellites right at these former ethnic borders. And, and to be sure, we only look at ethnic borders within countries, so we're not capturing between country variation. Okay, well, that's fascinating, absolutely fascinating. Um, Ed? Um, yeah, Jonathan, the, uh, the development of Western religions, and I guess we are speaking specifically about the Catholic Church, how did that manage to overcome the clannish um, cultures that preceded it? Yeah, that, that's a very good question and, and a question I, I, I get very often. And of course, there wasn't a law system or the functioning police who could just enforce new laws. But you see from, from many of the capitularies of, of Pepin and Jarleman and these Carolingian rulers were at the forefront of uh, this agenda to, to get rid of clans and lineages, probably also for selfish reasons. They wanted to govern and if you have strong opposing lineages, it's harder to govern. But what you see is they had a whole bunch of policies aimed at, at mitigating that. So if you look at marriages and you look at Hollywood movies, there's always this line, if, if someone has to say against the, something against this union, he should speak up or, or stay silent forever. And that can be traced back to the medieval times as one policy to, um, to <clears throat> go against cousin marriages. So suddenly marriages were public, people were allowed to speak up and encouraged uh, to speak up if any relatedness, prior relatedness between these people uh, were known, so whether they were cousins. But even more, though, Jarleman implemented, and I think that's very smart from an economic perspective, he said, well, if there's any marriages contracted between two people that are related, if you find out this marriage has to be annulled, and the property of this couple will be redistributed to the relatives. So now the relatives had a huge incentive to basically denounce um, what they would call incestuous marriages. So, so these were all these kinds of policies that Charlemagne and Pepin uh, installed to go against um, <clears throat> the cousin marriage. And you see even among the nobility, so the people with most power, the church and, and other secular rulers were going against them if they tried to marry cousins, and, and they were often successful. Oh, Rick. Jonathan, I'm going to shift gears here a little bit. Uh, as an unemployed political scientist, um, did a lot of study where the United States uh, and Britain were attempting to export uh, democracy into what was the find in after World War II as the developing areas of the world, uh, particularly Africa, Asia, <clears throat> the Middle East, uh, what have you. And it seems that, that your research uh, pretty much condemns the success of that kind of effort to, to uh, export a individualistic-based 
democratic political system. Yeah, um, um, unfortunately, it seems that that um, political systems are often tied to to an underlying psychology. Or let's let's put it differently. So, in, in, in economics, but also, I guess, to some degree, in political science. Uh, around the 2000s, there was this idea: we just need good functioning institutions, and once you have these good functioning institutions, everything will be good because it incentivizes yeah. people. And but there wasn't much talk where these are coming from. Well, in, in an you know ideal academic theoretical uh, mind experiment, of course, you could think uh, just drop good institutions on people. Um, but what was overlooked is that. In our, in in all around the world, many of these formal institutions, like the constitution, they are underwritten by many many informal norms. So the constitution in the U.S. is is not powerful as a written piece of paper. It's powerful that people want to adhere to it. They they internalize that that, that these are good values, or maybe they had these values before and that they were expressing them. And and of course the and, and a more practical implication is that. If you're embedded in strong clans, and, and you see this in, in many African countries, then you, you don't vote according to your own preferences, let's say, about redistribution. Voting is most often just along the lines of, of, of these clans or these ethnicities. But that also then implies that you don't get real political turnover. And the only way you get political turnover then is through a revolution. Because if everyone just votes according to their clan and lineage, and whatever clan and lineage is the dominates in, in, in numbers will, will will win. Okay, um, Jonathan, I'm I'm interested. We've talked about sort of how in, institutions in the Middle Ages were changed by the the sort of church's concepts toward marriage and so forth and so on, and then we've talked about how that seems to have affected the way uh, success, however you measure, you know, in one, at least one way to measure that functions in Africa. I'm interested, did your, did your research touch on the idea that once these sort of looser, these um, intensive rather than extensive um, variations were put in place, that that fed then the development of um, capitalism as it sort of takes off in early modern because i'm thinking in the middle ages you you still even with, as these changes were taking place you didn't have a lot of um incentives to to continue to be individualistic and so forth there was still that you know the concept where of chivalry or whatever but once the once the renaissance or the early modern period hits man there's really incentives to become much more individualistic do do you see that also that sometimes you can get movement or influence from both directions oh yes so it, it definitely wasn't in any sense a linear development and interestingly so this is very preliminary work but what we see is and, and that's very much in line with what many historians say is that we see a decline in the importance of, of kinship and then and, and we, we see an increase in importance of, of the, the vertical lineage again especially with uh, suddenly uh, surnames are um, 
are used, um, which solidi- solidifies vertical associations between people. But at the same time, for me, the Industrial Revolution is just the, just an outcome of process, processes that have had started way earlier. And um, if you look at data, you see that Europe was already changing in the, around the year 1000. So suddenly you get lots of uh, cities uh, that become independent. And these cities are not very large. And if you compare that to many other places uh, at, at the same time around the world, you had huge cities in, in Islam and, and, and in China. But these cities often were administrative centers of, of large empires. But in, in Europe, you suddenly get these decentralized cities, and these decentralized cities um, and then start trading with each other. So you, you get a whole different network structure, and a, a different network structure then also implies that uh, ideas are able to flow more freely. And, um, yeah, and at some point you, you get the uh, Industrial Revolution that, that um, you know, sparks, uh, I guess, starts first in England and then at other places. All right. Um, it is customary that we give our guests the last word on the show. So, Jonathan, why do you think knowing about the psychological variation uh, and how is that it has uh, affected the way the world is developing um, from uh, medieval Europe is relevant in today's world? So, so these mechanisms, you know, that we were sketching globally. Um, they can inform many policies and, and, um, and help us understand our world today. And just to say, in, in, in the U.S., for example, you know, there's, there's large polarization, or you have also regions that are poorer and regions that, that are richer. And this is something that we've been looking at uh, just recently. Um, basically, network structure or family structures within U.S. counties, and we find a very similar pattern if um, there are strong, historically strong family ties in, in, in specific counties. They tend to do less well economically, and they also have a more inward-looking uh, psychology that is geared towards the in-group. Well, if you look at uh, counties that that, are, that have a more diverse family pattern, then these are often those counties that do economically better and um, also have an outward-looking psychology. Jonathan, just to follow up on that, does this also then play out in terms of policy interactions between countries? Can we look at some of the stresses that, that are East-West related or um, some of the difficulties that that um, the United States has had in the Middle East in terms of exporting democracy? Is this also informing those kinds of issues? Absolutely, yeah. I, I, that's what I think, and um, I often think that you know there's lots of discussion about different religions, but if you dissect it more, you will find that much of that has to do with the about it has to do with social structures. So how and a society is organized. What are the uh, connecting dots between family and, and it kind of boils down how often. Does a person who who leaves his home bump into people that are different from him, and um, and there's just a large differences between societies. All right. Well, when we come back, we're going to wrap things up. So please stay tuned. This is ROI on KALA St. Ambrose University, one hundred six point one FM. 
you're listening to Relevant or Irrelevant. This series is produced at St. Ambrose University's KALA Radio and has been honored by the Midwest Broadcast Journalists Association and the Iowa Broadcast News Association for excellence in public affairs journalism. You can hear this edition of ROI and many previous programs in this series by visiting Spotify, Google Podcasts, SoundCloud, plus Apple Podcasts. ROI airs Friday nights at 9.30 p.m. on KALA HD2 and can also be heard at 106.1 FM in the Metropolitan Quad City area. You can stream this show every Friday night at TuneIn.com. Search for KALA HD2. This concludes our 543rd show of ROI, Relevant or Irrelevant. Our producer and engineer is Dave Baker. Our program manager is Rick Sweet. And the theme song for our show is titled Kayla's Theme and was written and performed by Mark Zapp Zapital. My name is Jay Swords. We would like to thank our guest, Dr. Jonathan Schulz, Assistant Professor in the Department of Economics at George Mason University. We've been talking about the church, intensive kinship, and global psychological variation. Our history buffs today were Rick Sweet and Ed Broders. This is ROI, Relevant or Irrelevant, on KALA. The views expressed on this show are not necessarily those of St. Ambrose University or KALA. We would like to wish all listeners to experience the great Basutu proverb, Hotsa Pula Nala, peace, reign, and prosperity. And remember, historians are horrible fortune tellers. Good night.